0: All right, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to the back of your Bibles, to Revelation, all right? If you're uh, unfamiliar with the, the book of, or the Bible, not the book, the Bible, um, starts with Genesis, ends with Revelation and so we are tackling the book of Revelation. Some of you are really excited about that, maybe too excited about it. Um, some of you uh, are fearful of what is about to happen because there's some crazy stuff in Revelation. We're going to briefly touch on it this morning, not on a ton here in chapter one, but it might get a little crazier and crazier as we go through where you're like, I don't know what this is talking about. Um, and we'll try to explain all those kind of things. Okay, so um, <clears throat> just as a reminder... In Revelation, this is a, uh, God's given this revelation to the Apostle John, and John is supposed to take this revelation that he has, and it's in a, a letter form, it's kind of this apocalyptic letter, and this prophetic letter, and he's supposed to send it around to seven different churches in Asia, all right, it's kind of like these churches were in modern kind of Western Turkey. And so they were to be sent around not to just one church, even though he addresses each church each church in chapters two and three we 'll talk about that next week, but they 're to be sent to all these churches read in all these churches, and they're to have they 're really ex- expressed to um, the universal church, so it 's relevant for all of us for all time. In God's church, okay? So um, in this, you've got to realize and you've got to know, because this is a big part of what we're going to talk about today, the context that they're receiving this, these letters in is intense persecution. So they, they are under great trials and tribulation because of their faith. And there are people not just like being made fun of because of their faith, they're being murdered because of their faith. They're being martyred because of their faith. And their family members are dying because of their faith. So it is a season where like, oh yeah, I'll follow Jesus. And if you say that, you might die. And so this letter and this revelation is meant for these churches to be encouraged. To say, hey, I want you to know who wins in the end. And you need to stay faithful in the midst of this in all these hard circumstances that you're facing, I want you to stay faithful. And as you stay faithful, you're going to have to keep your eyes on somebody that's going to be Jesus. So he's reminding them of like what's to come in the future to encourage their present faithfulness. But for these churches, we're going to find out next week, there's a lot of compromise already happening. In the midst of this pressure, they're already compromising and they're like wavering in their doctrine they're jumping into some immoral like worldly materialistic habits and so I imagine for John who possibly was an overseer of the overseer of these churches at one time I can imagine he's pretty discouraged man like these are churches that I've invested so much in and now they're going this direction and I know it's really hard I know there's a lot of there's a lot of persecution happening but I hate to see them go their own way Maybe that's some of you this morning. You see maybe a church that you grew up in, and now we have the ability to like listen to sermons from just about any church we want to listen to. And you go, man, I grew up in this church, and they faithfully preached the gospel. And you went back and you listened to a sermon recently, and you're like, man, they didn't even open their Bible. Or you see another church, and you're like, man, they're just, it feels like they're compromising, and they're giving in to whatever the world says they should do, and they just do that. And we can find ourselves discouraged. And when we find ourselves discouraged because of trials and because of the temptation to compromise in other churches, we can run to a lot of things to find our comfort, right? We can run to the the pleasures of this world. Man, I'm just going to go find comfort here. If I just keep my job, keep a good, healthy bank account, even though everything else is crazy, I'll be okay. Or if I just run to these people, they're my good family and they're my friends. They'll tell me what I want to hear and they'll encourage me. Because if you keep running to those types of things, you're going to find yourself even in a bigger mess and more discouraged in the long run. You might be more encouraged in the short term, but in the long run, you're going to be more discouraged. So if we can't run to all these other places, who do we run to? Who should we listen to? Who should we look at to find encouragement, to find assurance in the midst of trials? That's what we're going to answer this morning. We're going to finish up uh, Revelation 1. There's a lot here, guys. Um, there's a lot of Old Testament references. I'm not even giving you probably half of them this morning unless you want like a three-hour sermon. We're going to try to avoid that, okay? Some of you are like, please avoid that. Um, so we're going to start in verse... Uh, 4. We're going to work our way all through the chapter, all right? So verse 4, beginning of it, it says, John to the seven churches that are in, in Asia. All right, so again, John's this overseer over this these group of churches most likely. And down in verse 11, it's not going to be on the screen, but it says who those seven churches are. It says, write what you see in a book, Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So these are seven real churches that he's going to send this letter to. This letter is going to kind of circulate among these churches, but it's critical that we know what the number seven represents in Revelation, because this number is going to show up over and over. It's a number that shows up all the way Through scripture, but seven in Revelation especially is going to refer to completeness or fullness, okay? So we look back to creation, seven days of creation, it's good, everything's like this is the complete creation, all right? And in Revelation, we're gonna see this number show up over and over, so you gotta know this is gonna refer to being complete or full. So he's writing to kind of the complete picture of churches, so it's not just for seven local churches. This letter is meant for the universal church, really, for all times. Now, he's going to address specific churches. We're going to look at that tremendously next week in chapters 2 and 3. But this letter is relevant to all churches for all time, okay? So, let's keep going. Verses uh, the end of 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So they're typical greetings in like, letters in the New Testament right here. Grace and peace, right? Paul writes that often in his letters. Grace and peace to you. But if you are struggling and you're in this overwhelming context where you're being persecuted all the time and a family member might die or you might die, don't you think you really want grace and peace? Of course, you do. Like, this is going to, they're going to hear this in a different way. Yes, please give us grace and peace. We can read this at the beginning of a letter and just kind of skip over that. Oh, yeah, that's how they greeted each other. But this, this is a big deal for these churches. Grace and peace is going to come to them. Now, that's a big deal, but who the grace and peace comes from is the bigger deal, right? Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, when these churches hear this, their mind's going to immediately go back to Exodus chapter 3. and In Exodus chapter 3, the Israelites are being held captive in Egypt. They're under slavery in Egypt, and God calls out this man named Moses. He says, hey, Moses, I need you to go to Pharaoh, the leader, the one who's... In this, I would say, pretty overwhelming situation, an enemy of yours, opposition of yours, I need you to go to him, and I need you to say, hey, let my people go. And Moses is like, uh, uh, who, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? And who does he say? I am. Tell him that I am sent you. I am, that's weird. Like, this is to show God's eternal nature. Like it's not just somebody like that exists like right now. This is somebody who exists forever, who is and who was and is to come. So in this overwhelming Egyptian situation, Egyptian captivity, the Israelites are going, oh, I'm on I am side. That's what's happening here. These churches are here they this going, oh, grace and peace. They're coming from God, the father. You can't compare God, the father to anybody else. He's sovereign over all this. He's in control of all over this. He will rescue us in overwhelming odds, laughable odds. When the odds are stacked against you, he's saying, don't forget who's sending grace and peace. When you're going through crazy trials in your life, maybe you're being persecuted for your faith. Do not forget who's going to bring grace and peace to you. It's the one who is and was and is to come. And as I started thinking about this, I was like, how can I give an illustration to help everybody like understand how incredible it is for God the Father to be on your side? Like, and I started trying to think of all of them, they all just fall short though. Like, they go like, "Hey, what if you're on a football team and like Tom Brady was your quarterback? Well, he just lost in the playoffs last week, right? I know he's got seven Super Bowls, but he lost again, right?" Or like, you could be on a basketball team with Michael Jordan. Well, he's retired. Like, you could be on a baseball team with Babe Ruth. He's dead. Like, that doesn't help you, does it? Doesn't help you at all. But the one who is eternal in nature, the one that can bring grace and peace into any situation, that's who's sending this letter? Man, it's more than John. This is such an encouragement to these churches. This is coming from God the Father, but it doesn't stop there. It says, and... From the seven spirits who are before his throne. You're like, here we go in Revelation. I don't know what this is talking about, right? Like, who are the seven spirits? In Isaiah chapter 11, we get this picture of the Holy Spirit. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is all talking about the Holy Spirit, all right? Even though it's Old Testament, it's talking about the Spirit of the Lord. Each of these now, how many of them? Spirit of the Lord? I'm going to run out of fingers here just to so show you now. Spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the Lord. How many is that? Seven. This complete picture of the Holy Spirit. That You see this picture, John sees this picture of seven spirits, but it's just representing the Holy Spirit. That grace and peace are coming from God the Father, and they're coming from the Holy Spirit. Like, why is that a big deal that grace and peace come from the Holy Spirit? Because there's another time in Scripture where there was an overwhelming task. And we find out how the Spirit helps in that overwhelming task. So the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. People had been taken away in exile. Well, at some point they're allowed to come back and they want to rebuild the temple. And there's this guy named Zerubbabel. All right? Zerubbabel is re- going to help rebuild the temple. But he's kind of struggling. He's like, man, this is overwhelming. How are we going to accomplish this? And the prophet Zechariah comes and he gets this vision from the Lord to share with Zerubbabel. And this is what he says. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So how are you going to accomplish rebuilding this temple? By your might? No. By your power? No, I know this task is overwhelming. How are you going to accomplish it? By my spirit. Who are you, O great mountain? This thing seems huge. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. How are we going to rebuild this temple? It seems like such an overwhelming task. You're going to rebuild it by the power of the Spirit. And then you're going to shout grace, grace to it. Who's bringing the grace to those rebuilding the temple? The Spirit. Who's bringing the grace and peace to these people facing tremendous trials and persecution? The Spirit. Like, this is... This is such a shot in the arm if you're one of those seven churches, like, man, we're struggling. This is hard. But this is coming from God. This comes from the Spirit. Then it doesn't stop there. It comes from Jesus. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Like, who is who else is this coming from? This is coming from Jesus Christ. Now we're going to get a bigger picture of Jesus in just a second at the end of this chapter. So I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time on Jesus here. But it says he's the faithful witness. He's the reliable one. He's reliable to the Father. He's reliable to his people. He's the firstborn of the dead. That doesn't mean he's the first one that died. He's the first one of creation. But because of his resurrection, he gets priority in all of creation. His resurrection brings about a new creation. And he becomes preeminent over the rest of creation. In Colossians chapter 1, this is what Paul writes about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, if you read that and you're one of the seven churches like, oh, yes, he's over all these people that are against us. All things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It says, he was preeminent over everything. Now, how can I help you understand, Like, what does that mean Like preeminent? He was supreme over everything. And I've shared this illustration before because it's the best one I got. When I think of supreme, I think of pizza, all right? And you, like... We have pizza and movie night at our house with our kids on Friday night. And they want like cheese or pepperoni pizza. Why, kids? Like you could have supreme. You could have it all and you're settling for so much less, right? I mean, one of them's four. But anyway, (laughs) like you could have everything on there. Like you're settling for this over here. Like who is Jesus Christ? Who is the one bringing grace and peace? He's the one that's supreme over all. But this is an overwhelming circumstances. People want to kill us and kill our families. Do not forget that Jesus is supreme. He's going to bring grace and peace to the situation. This is good news for these churches. Great news. And then at the end of verses 5 and 6, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So it's just this statement of praise. We sing a a song called the Doxology in church. It's just a statement of praise. That's what John's doing here. I'm just going to praise Jesus for a second. I'm going to praise him because he loves us, because he's freed us by his blood, and he's made us a kingdom and priesthood. Like, this is great news. We don't have time to look at it, but in Exodus chapter 19, write that down, Exodus 19, three through six, look through that later. Um, But it's when the Israelites, they were overwhelmed. Again, an overwhelming situation, right? They're overwhelmed. They've just come out of captivity. They're wandering around in the wilderness, and at this point... God says to, through Moses, "Like, hey, I'm going to make you a kingdom and a priesthood. Like, you're, you're this nation. I'm going to separate you and make you into something. I'm going to give you a new identity. And that's what, right here, John is trying to remind them of. Jesus, through this revelation, is reminding those churches. I'm not just bringing grace and peace, but I want to remind you of your identity. Don't forget it. Don't forget who you are. So, then we go down to verse 7. Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. Guys, don't make this complicated. Jesus is coming back. He's gonna return and he's gonna set everything right. So even when the situation is hard for this local context, Jesus is coming back. He's gonna, vindication is coming with him, right? And you get this picture from Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to look at in a little bit, or talk about in a little bit. Daniel chapter 7, that's one of these chapters uh, that you need to look back through as we read Revelation, all right? It's going to help you understand a lot, all right? Daniel 7, you get this picture of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. The one that's going to rule and reign in a forever eternal kingdom is coming back, and he's going to bring vindication. That's the picture here, all right? And it says all people are going to mourn and they're going to weep over their sins. Like, Jesus is going to come back and in his holiness and righteousness, you're going to be like, oh, man, you're holy, I'm not. Like, it's going to be a lot, maybe a lot worse than, oh, man, right? Um, <clears throat> that's, that's the picture we're getting of Jesus here. He's coming back for it, his church. That's an awesome thing. But everybody's going to face that reality, all right? And then verse 8, God's going to double down on a lot that he's already talked about. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Just in case, churches, you didn't realize, you didn't understand it the first time, I'm the Alpha and Omega. That's the beginning and ending letters of the Greek alphabet, all right? Where he goes, I'm covering it all who is and was and is to come. I'm over all history. Even this part of history right now that you're stuck in, in the middle of of Roman persecution, I'm over it. Don't forget it. I'm still the Almighty. So you get this incredible greeting here that we could just run by, but this greeting is saying, hey, this is not just from John. This is from God. And you get this picture of the Trinity. It doesn't say Trinity, but God the Father and the Spirit and God the Son, Jesus Christ. This is where grace and peace are coming from. So pay attention. And if you want to find assurance, you better pay attention to what's coming next. All right? So then verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos and on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we've already talked about this last week and this week. This is where John identifies himself as the one writing. And he's writing from where? He's writing from Patmos. This is this island that he's been exiled to. Why? Because of his faith. Because he's proclaimed the gospel. And he's been put on an island alone. He wasn't just made fun of. He was literally sent to an island to die there Some people think he may have gotten off that island near the end of his life. But either way, he's sent to an island, exiled because of his faith. So, as a result, he says, I'm your brother and partner in tribulation. I'm a fellow partaker in this tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance. Like, I get it, guys. That's what he's saying. All these churches, I'm with you. I understand what you're going through because I'm right there with you. Not only is God sending this letter, but I get it. I understand. Then verses 10 and 11. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And that's where he lists the churches. So what's happening here is he's going, look, he's, he's finally getting this vision. But it's not a vision yet, it's just sounds. And this sound is like a trumpet coming from behind him. And this sound is loud and it's piercing and it's clear and he understands it. And this kind of harkens back to Old Testament prophets where they would hear clearly from the Lord God. And he's going, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's like, I was kind of in the spiritual zone. I was listening and hearing clearly and directly from God. God. And it was on the Lord's day. It was on a Sunday. I don't know why he gives us that that, um, detail, but he does. I was listening. Uh, I'm kind of hearing from the Spirit. I'm not kind of. I'm hearing directly and clearly from the Spirit on this day. And I'm hearing this, and it sounds like a trumpet. And again, this is like Old Testament. Oh, yeah, this is how Old Testament prophets heard from the Lord. And he says, I want you to send it to all these churches. And then what he does next is you get an even more incredible picture of Jesus. And it's awesome. It's not some cute picture of Jesus. It's an awesome picture of Jesus. And we're going to see how wonderful Jesus is. And as I was praying for the past few weeks about this sermon, that's what I prayed over and over. Not that we would learn something new today, but we would be reminded how awesome Jesus is. And so let's look at verse 12 through 16. Now you're going to hear me read this and you'll be like, I don't understand why that's awesome. It's weird, all right? So just hang on. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Some of you like, oh, now I know I was weird, all right? <laughs> like this is not probably one of those things where we go to kids' ministry and say, draw this picture of Jesus, right? weird. There's, his eyes are flaming. Like my kids may draw this anyway, like flaming fire eyes, swords coming out of his mouth, crazy feet, like all kinds of stuff happening here. Why is this a big deal? Why is this an awesome picture of Jesus? Because you see, like he's, he hears this great voice and then he turns around to see, him. whoa, whoa. And he sees seven lampstands. What are these lampstands he's seeing? Well, in verse 20, God gives us kind of the key to the interpretation, which is awesome because we don't always get this in Revelation. But in verse 20, it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Cool, God, that doesn't really help so much. And then, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here you've got somebody standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And what are the seven lampstands? They're the seven churches. So somebody is standing in the midst of these churches and he's standing there. And in the right hand is, is some stars, right? And he says, the stars are the angels of those churches. Now, scholars kind of disagree on what those stars actually are um, or what those angels actually are. So one interpretation would be the stars were like heavenly beings, Sixty times in Revelations, when an angel is talked about, it's talked about a heavenly being. All right, so these are this is kind of a guardian angel over each church, or a representative angel over each church. So that could be one thing. Another very good interpretation would be. Angel also refers to messengers in scripture, all right? So these messengers are the ones bringing the message in the church, the leaders in authority over each church. What he's saying is in my right hand, I either have these heavenly kind of representative angels over each church or in my right hand, I have the leaders in authority over each church. The critical thing that you need to know is where they are in his right hand. Jesus has got these churches, And you're like, what is going on in this church? Where is Jesus? He's in the middle of his church and he's in control of his church. Don't forget that. So Jesus is standing there. Somebody is in the midst of this. And I keep saying Jesus. I'm kind of giving this ahead of time, right? But we see from verses 17 and 18 that he's talking about the resurrected Lord Jesus. He was dead and now he's alive. So this picture of what we get is of the resurrected Lord Jesus. So Jesus is in the midst of his church. In trials and suffering and compromise, Jesus is still in the midst of his church, and their attention is to be drawn to Jesus. So it says, what was he like? He was like a son of man. This goes back to Daniel chapter 7. We mentioned it earlier. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, gets this vision. And he gets this vision, and it's a weird vision. It's four beasts. And like it makes Daniel kind of sick to his summit to see what they're doing. And later we find out that those four beasts are four kings or rulers over the earth. So different kingdoms have been set up, and these four kings are there. But then, in the midst of them reigning, in the midst of this overwhelming situation, with these four beastly kings reigning in the world... The Ancient of Days, who references God the Father, steps in. And it says, he's going to take over. He's going to establish a kingdom that overwhelms these four other kingdoms. God's going to establish this kingdom, and then one who is like a son of man. Son of man is the way that Jesus references himself more than any other way in the New Testament. So we're talking about Jesus here. So one like the Son of Man comes under the authority of the Ancient of Days and is handed the keys to the kingdom, basically. And Jesus, the Son of Man, establishes this eternal kingdom forever. And this is the picture that they're getting from Daniel 7 as they hear this revelation. The Ancient of Days, this is how awesome he is and how Jesus is part of that, the Son of Man, all right? So it says... He's in a long robe and has a sash around him, right? A long robe with a golden sash around him. This represented superior status. If you're in the army at that time, the longer your robe was, the more status you had, the more in charge you were. For the golden sash around them, that's what priests wore. So it represents you have superior status as a ruler and superior status as a priest, This is the picture of Jesus that we're getting. Superior, ruling over everything, priestly, royal. And then it says the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. All right? Don't make fun of people with white, woolly hair, all right? Just saying. Lots of young people in this room make fun of my gray hair, all right? There's a picture of Jesus here, guys. And white hair in Scripture represents wisdom. All right, it represents a lot of stress and kids in my life, right? Um, but you, like, you get this picture of an all knowing God. Like, it's incredible. Like, you're not, you don't just have priestly royal status, you know everything. You know it all. This is how the Ancient of Days was described one like the Son of Man is described. And then it says, His eyes were like fire. There's like this sparkling vitality to Jesus' eyes where he could see everything, where nobody could hide. What is God doing in the midst of his church? He knows the spiritual condition of his church. And he's gonna bless it or he's gonna judge it. That should be a sobering reminder for all of us in this room that Jesus sees everything and he knows everything. And then it says his feet were like Burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and guys, this is not just a pic- this is not a picture of what Jesus looks like. This is a this is a picture of who he is. So like if you just saw Jesus, this is not what you would see, all right but this is what John is seeing like. This represents who Jesus is, all right And this idea of feet like burnished bronze, this he has this foundation of moral purity where his church is going to be. Pure. And we're to represent him in that way. And then it says that his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is how God Almighty is described. And now Jesus is described with the voice like the roar of many waters. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls before? A few of you. I had the opportunity to go to Niagara Falls at one point and get on the little ship, the Maid of the Mist, that goes up right next to the falls. And you're there. And it is so loud. So you're like screaming at the person beside you, Hey, do you see this? They're like, Yeah, I'm right here with you, right? Like they saw it. Like they're like, Yeah, it's awesome. It's incredible. But you're having to scream because the, the roar of so much water is pouring down. Like that's how Jesus is described. It extends everywhere, his voice. You can't escape it. And then it goes back to his right hand having the stars, right? He's in control. Then it says his mouth, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 4 about God's word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is piercing. And here, out of Jesus' mouth, you get God's words that are piercing. Piercing words of judgment, where he's going to judge the disobedience of the church, he's going to judge the world. And then it says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the picture that one would get of a victorious Israelite warrior. They've just come out of victory, and they would say, Oh, his face is shining like the sun. Jesus is in victory. So imagine if you're one of these churches. You're overwhelmed. It's a whole lot. Your, peop- your friends and family members are dying. Your life is at risk. And he's going, Hey, I want you to set your sight on something far greater than your circumstances. I want you to set your sight on Jesus In tribulation, what do you need to see? We don't see a cute, meek, and mild picture of Jesus here. There are other parts where we see him like having children, sitting with him, and him being like a lamb. That's not the picture we get here. When you're overwhelmed because of trials, what do you see here? You see a wise, all-knowing, strong, protective, refined, powerful, victorious, sharp, sovereign, and purifying priest, king, and judge. You want to withstand trials and overcome tribulation? You keep that picture in your mind, church. Don't miss that. You want to be assured in life to know that somebody is there to help you? You keep your eyes on that. So what was John's response? Verse 17 through 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But here comes the compassion of Jesus. What he laid his right hand on me saying. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So he's saying, what what is John's response when he saw this incredible picture of Jesus? He fell on his face as though dead. And we see that multiple times throughout scriptures. When people get a vision of who God is, They're like just humbled and they fall on their faces. I can't even... And they worship. Guys, when we see this picture of Jesus, it should cause us to praise him. You were singing loud earlier. Like when we see this picture of Jesus, we're going to want to sing even louder. Because that's the only response we can have. How do I stand within this guy's presence? Within Jesus' presence? And you fall on your faces though dead. But then Jesus reaches over and says, puts his hand on your shoulder. And he goes fear not. You don't have to be scared of what's around you. You don't have to be scared of the overwhelming circumstances around you. Yes, worship me for who I am, but I want you to believe that I'm the first and the last. I've got all this under control. And I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And his resurrection, guys, man, He has victory over death because of his resurrection. And now he holds the keys to death and Hades. Like he didn't just have victory over it. Now he rules over death so that we can have victory. So that in the midst of crazy persecution, we can go, it's all good. It's going to work out. This is hard and I don't like going through it, but I know who wins and I'm on his team. So why should John not fear? Why should these churches not fear? Why should we be assured? Or how can we be assured? Guys, I want you to find your assurance by focusing your attention on Jesus. Find your assurance in life by focusing your attention on Jesus. When you're unjustly persecuted, fix your eyes on Jesus for assurance. If you're trying to figure out where do I look when these trials are coming at me over and over, you put your attention on Jesus because Jesus is saying, I got this. Don't you worry, I got this. How do we respond to this picture? My hope and my prayer has been that all of us would be, respond the way John responded. That we would worship because of how awesome Jesus is. And we would not fear our circumstances. But then what does he tell John after that? He says, hey, I want you to go write this down and share it with other people. When we get this picture of Jesus, guys, we can't keep it to ourselves. Your neighbor needs to hear of this amazing Jesus that you worship. Your coworker needs to hear. Your family member needs to hear how awesome Jesus is, guys. You don't just fall down on your face and just say, I'm just going to worship forever. Yeah, you worship. You worship. We'll be doing that forever, but God still has a mission and a plan for your life here. You worship and you don't fear and you share this picture of Jesus with others. Maybe not share it in these exact words, all right? That might be a little scary and weird, but you talk about how awesome Jesus is. Guys, imagine. Imagine if we're the church that doesn't compromise, that isn't overwhelmed, not because we're a great church, not because we're a cool church, not because we have it figured out, but we don't compromise because we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and how awesome He is. That's the kind of church we want to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank You so much. Thank You for this picture. God, just, just burn it in our minds so that we can't lose sight of how awesome You are. And when the trials and the tribulations of this world come. Father, may we be known as a church that fixes our attention on you. So lift our eyes, God, off our circumstances, off the things of this world and put them on you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.